Today, can you believe, this is 9-11, which for some of us, that, that's a pretty vivid reminder. I know it's crazy. Is it crazy that it's 21 years ago? That just seems so hard to believe. Um, it was weird for us. My wife and I landed here in, uh, in, in Orange County the morning of 9-11 from New York. So we were actually in the Trade Towers the day before. So for us, it's always that interesting uh, kind of one of those moments where you think about it, but we just want to take a moment and, and pray. It, that was a day that, that for any of us who remember that, obviously it was a day, it was just so surreal, right, that led into a, a long period of time that was surreal, but it's just a reminder that the world is, is not as it should be. You know, the, the brokenness and the pain and uh, the lives that were lost that day, and think of the, the the response afterwards, how many of our men and women who went to defend our country lost their lives, and, and many of you actually were deployed and sent there, or you have friends who went, and so let's just take a moment and, and to pray, and mainly to, we want to remember that day, but what we want to remember is that in the midst of chaos, God is in control, and we always want to be turning our hearts to, Lord, we can't explain everything. We don't get it. But we are going to ask for you for peace and comfort. And so, and there's many people across the country today that this brings up a lot of turmoil. And so let's, let's just take some moment just to pray. So join me. God, we thank you uh, that we can come to you knowing that you are real. We come to you knowing that you can meet us in our pain, in our heartbreak, um, in our confusion. And Lord, today, even on a day like 9-11, for some, that is a very, very a vivid reminder of the brokenness of the world. Maybe people who've lost family members. I think of um, a lot of the first responders who serve tirelessly every year and how so many lost their life there. And then our men and women of our uh, military, Lord, who uh, gave their lives to serve. God, we just, we just ask for comfort today on a day like this. And uh, we ask that you would increase our confidence in you and who you are. So we thank you that uh, you are not uh, absent and that you're present with us now. So Lord, open our eyes and ears to who you are. Speak to us in this place. In your name, amen. All right, I want to op- uh, invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James. So today we are beginning a brand new series in the book of James. It's near the end of your Bible. For those of you maybe who are new to scripture, it's, it's almost in the very back. And you're always welcome to use a digital version if you're more comfortable with that. For those of you who like to read, or even if you don't, how important is it to understand the context of what you're reading? In the early 50s, there was a, a, a short story, a science fiction story uh, written. It was called To Serve Man. And, and it was a story about these aliens who came to Earth and they started to uh, help humans to thrive. They made sure that humans had all the food we needed and new technologies and free of distraction and all this great stuff they were doing. And they created this alien embassy and, and, and they were just as nice aliens on Earth. And they found uh, there was even a new embassy that opened up. And there's a couple of the main characters of this story who are narrators and one of them started working in this embassy and learning the language and found a book in their embassy, the alien embassy, called, uh, it, it was called How to Serve Man. And so they saw that and said, oh, this is, this is who they are. Look at that. They, they have a manual, How to Serve Man. That's why they're so kind and all this stuff. And as his translation got better and better, he realized very quickly that the book was a cookbook. 
Take a minute. I'll take a minute to think about that. Context is really important. Would you agree? In this book that was how to serve man, thinking they were fattening us up and giving us all this food, it was actually because this is the best way to serve man at the next dinner party. Context is really important. When we look into scripture and we read letters or we read stories in the Bible, it is important that we get context. Uh, imagine if I opened up here this morning uh, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and I just started reading from it. And what if we had no idea what it was about and we thought, oh, this is a history book. Because if you read it without understanding what it is, you might think, oh, this is interesting. It's written like a history book. It's very, you know, this, these are things that happened. Could you imagine if we didn't know where to put that in context, our view, what our view of the world would be? It would be very hard to look at trees in the forest and not be a little scared of them. Or it, it, to go into the mountains and think, there might be orcs lurking around here. And if any of you haven't read Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, you need to get out, okay? You need to get out a little if none of this makes sense to you. But so context, even in what we go through, always matters. And so we're going to start today this, studying the book of James. And it's really important that we start with an understanding about the context of this, which is considered a letter in the New Testament. Because if we did get the wrong context, we could read it and have a totally different understanding. And some people have throughout history. The book of James, by the way, has been debated and discussed among scholars. There's even some, Martin Luther is one of the most famous, who kind of struggled with the book of James a little bit. And for a while questioned, should we even keep it in the Bible? He he finally agreed, but thought, let's put it near the back of the Bible. But, but so it's one of those books that if we don't get the context, we can get a totally different understanding. So anytime we jump into Scripture, here's some questions we need to ask when we're starting a new book. So a few things we want to start with is a question of, uh, the first thing is, why is this book written? And we need to ask these four questions. First one is, who wrote it? Second one is, who read it? The third question we're going to ask is, what were they experiencing? So wh why did he write it? What were they experiencing in this situation? And then the last one is, what type of writing or what's the genre? Believe me, that matters. So we want to ask those questions. Who wrote this? Who read this? So who was intended to read it? What was life like for them? What were they going through? And then, what type of writing? And when I say the genre, there, there's a very big difference between if they wrote a historical book, for example. If it's writing a history, we'll read a, we read a lot of the Old Testament, a lot of historical narratives. Now, if we read some of those stories and we didn't understand that it's a narrative explaining life for the Israelites, and we read it as, oh, this is the to-do list of how to live, we might become very violent people thinking, this is what we need to do. But when we get the genre and we go, oh, it's explaining how they were processing and how they were falling short and, and as a historical narrative, it's, it's a different place than an instructional book. So we want to ask those questions. So we are going to do that by jumping into the book of James, and James helps us by answering a couple of those questions right at the very beginning. So let's go to the beginning, James chapter 1, and let's start in verse 1. He starts off, and he says, James... A bondservant of the Lord, uh, of God and of the Lord Jesus. So this is great. It's almost like James said, what's the first question people need to know? They need to know who wrote it. So he starts off and he tells us, and this is how you'd start 
letters in the ancient world. So he starts with, I'm James, I'm the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Now, but what, who is James? Some more context. This James, and I'm going to kind of fast forward, we've done the research for you, is actually James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Most scholars would agree that's who it is based on the time of writing. We know that there was James who was one of the disciples, could have been him, except for by the time this was written, most likely that James had already been martyred for his faith. So this is most likely a younger brother of Jesus. We hear about him throughout the book of Acts, especially in Acts chapter 15. He had risen to the top. He was pretty much the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time. So we have this guy named James, who's the half-brother, younger brother of Jesus, who at one point we know didn't even believe who Jesus was as the Messiah. We, we read the stories in Scripture who his siblings were going, ah, there's Jesus claiming to be God again, and, and kind of growing up with, with, with this perfect older brother. But we find by the time of Acts 15, not only was he a believer in who Jesus was, but he considers himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus who came in flesh, who lived among this earth, is God in flesh. And I'm his bondservant. Now, isn't that interesting? That as the brother of Jesus, he doesn't pull rank there. He doesn't say, James, I'm the brother of God. All right? I, I, he, I grew up with him. I, I pretty much know more about him than any of you. He doesn't, he doesn't pull that at all. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which gives a little bit of how he sees his relationship. He understands that he too was saved by grace of, of Jesus, that something happened through his life, his death, his resurrection, and now his status isn't because of his background, because of the family he was born into, because of who he knew or what he's accomplished. It was because of Jesus. And so therefore, he says, I am his servant. That's who James is. He's writing this. The verse goes on. He says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, I send you greetings. So to the 12 tribes. Now, this is an interesting term. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, that would refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that in the New Testament, many Christians still consider themselves part of the 12 tribes. It was actually it was an indication saying we are part of the family of God. Now, the time of writing, this most likely entailed mostly Jewish followers of Jesus. The very first Christians were almost all of them were Jewish uh, uh, followers of Jesus. And so they, at this point, he said the 12 tribes who've been dispersed. Now, who's been dispersed? This is a word that in modern times has different meaning of, or similar meaning of diaspora. You might hear that of the Jews today. It's Jews who are scattered throughout the earth. This happened as well. In Acts chapter 11, we hear a story of, of, of a guy named Stephen who was a follower of Jesus. He's killed for his faith. And after that, it says the Jews were dispersed, that they, a great persecution started happening to the church. And by chapter 11, they were dispersed. And, and throughout the ancient world. So what we see here is James is writing a letter that is intended to go to the Christians who are out, who've been dispersed. They're no longer centered in Jerusalem. So we got that. So now we know who wrote it, who read it, what were they experiencing? Well, I'll give you a little bit, and then we'll get into the next verse. But they were experiencing persecution. 
these first Christians, in some ways, it was really a hard place for them because they didn't fit in with their Jewish brothers and sisters who didn't believe in Jesus. So in other words, all the Jews who said, we claim that Jesus is our Messiah, he's a fulfillment of scripture, he's the one that, we claim loyalty with Jesus, so they didn't fit in then with those who said, no, we don't believe that Jesus is a fulfillment. So they were outside of that family, and that's where that persecution started coming from. It actually came from the temple, from the high priest, saying, no, you're not part of us. But interestingly, is they also didn't fit in in the Gentile world, in the Greco-Roman world. They weren't yet, at this point, persecuted by the, the, the Romans didn't care what you believed as long as you were cool with Caesar. So, by the way, the, the Romans were like, religious freedom, sure, as long as you're fine with Caesar, we don't care what you believe. So they weren't yet persecuted by the Romans, but probably soon after this, that started happening. But they just didn't fit in. They were being persecuted. They were having to leave their homes. They were standing up for Jesus and being rejected by their own people. This is a little bit of the context of their world. Now, what type of writing are we about to see? So the book of James is interesting. It's very different. If you're familiar with scripture, it's not like some of the letters that Paul writes. Paul writes a good part of the New Testament, and his letters are typically pretty systematic. Most of them have a logical flow of thought. They start with a lot of content to build up your understanding and then practical application. The book of James is like reading Proverbs. If you've ever read Proverbs, sometimes it's just hitting you like, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea, and you just get one thought after another, and sometimes they're not connected at all. When we read the book of James, some would call it a part of wisdom literature. It's closer to wisdom literature than it is to a typical letter. There is no logical flow of thought. Now, I'm not saying what he writes is illogical, but he's not trying to build an argument based on one thing to the next. And most likely, most scholars would agree that it probably is Sunday morning sermon ideas that are being sent out to the churches. Their instructions to say, oh, we talked about this It wasn't Sunday morning, by the way, but there were Saturday mornings. But our synagogue conversation, we talked about this as we gathered as a church. Oh, the next day we were breaking bread and and talking about the apostles' teaching. We went this and talked about this subject and this subject. Oh, how do we apply faith here? And all of these sermon topics or conversations that popped up, James starts going, oh, we need to tell followers who are dispersed, who aren't here. We want to make sure they hear some instructions that they're getting the same teaching. So that's why when you read it, it can sound very much like, wow, tons of content and a bunch of different ideas. So again, we want to ask that. What is the genre? Once we know that this was written to people who already believe in Jesus, and it's a whole bunch of practical thoughts of how to apply your faith, it helps us understand. Okay? Track it with me? So let's jump right back in. So we have Verse 1, we know who wrote it and who it's written to. Now let's get into some content for the day. He, He starts right off. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, remember, what were they experiencing? Trials. So the first thing he says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. 
How many of you, it's just, it's all joy when you experience trials. Just all joy. Now, let me point out a few things. One, he says various trials, all kinds of different trials. We know some of you, in fact, last week as a church, we prayed over some of our families who are really going through some tough trials right now. Major health issues in their family. To me, that counts as a trial, right? That's a trial. And James would include that. But notice he says all kinds of trials. See, there's this temptation to think that your trial isn't big enough to count as a trial. That what you're going through, maybe you say, well, it's not cancer. It's not a big health issue. So I I don't want to bother with it. But James is saying, no, no, no. What you're going through counts as one of these. For some of you, maybe it's just, hey, in our marriage, we're just in a rough spot. We're kind of just not connecting like we normally would. Hey, that's your trial right now. Maybe it's your kids are struggling. Your family members are wrestling with anxiety or depression and you feel hopeless. Maybe that's you. You're going through it. You say, I can't change this. I'm trying to. That's your trial. Maybe you're in school and it's a bully in a classroom. That's a trial. And so when James is writing, he's not saying, hey, it has to kind of rise to this level of if if someone's trying to kill you, that's a trial. But if, you know, you lost your job, that's not really a trial. Go get a new one. Like, no, no, he's not saying that. He's saying when we experience hardships, when we experience things that happen that we weren't expecting or that we're wrestling through or that are difficult for us, he says this, that is your trial. Now consider it all joy. No, (laughs) I don't want to consider it all joy. So we have to understand, what does he mean by joy? Now, this idea of joy isn't like this joyful laughing, like, oh, I lost my job today. Isn't that great? It's not that kind of, that's that's more of happiness. The biblical uh, idea of joy is it's deeply rooted in our belief that God is in control. It's a joy that says, I know that even though right now things are hard, that this is not all there is. Even though right now I can't make sense of it, I have hope that my God is still with me and that he is still on his throne. And so because of my belief in that, I can face this, not with laughter, not as if it doesn't matter, but with a deeper sense of peace and confidence that somehow God is still present and working. So when he says, consider it all joy, he's not saying laugh through all the hard things. He's saying, find a way that in this to just deepen your confidence in who God is and what he's up to. So consider it joy when you face various trials. Now why? This is where he gets into it. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This word here, testing, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it actually relates to a type of testing that had to do with blacksmiths. And they'd take silver and they would test it. And what they tested it is they'd, they'd heat the silver till it was liquid form. And all of the impurities in the silver, all the dross and different impurities, would rise to the top of the silver. And as that silver, all the impurities would rise to the top, the blacksmith would take the impurities out, dump it, reheat it, and do it again. And that was called testing the silver. And when you were done testing the silver is when the blacksmith could look into the silver and see a perfect reflection without blemish. 
So it's interesting that the word that is used here by James is the trials, the things we go through in our lives are testing us like silver. It says that if God is allowing impurities in our life to rise to the surface, and each time he wants to skim them off, throw them out, and do it again, so that he can eventually see a perfect reflection of himself in us. So the testing of our faith, this heating up and bringing impurities to the surface, is God's process of doing something in us. Now, I don't really, I just want to say, God, can you just do it once? Let's just do one test, whatever you find in there, dump it. Let's not do it again and again and again. But it's as if the deeper we dig, the more there is to find. And so it says, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance is uh, this word here that is actually talking about this cheerful or hopeful, more like a hopeful endurance. It's this idea that even in this hard thing, it's, it's I'm learning how to hope that there's something more. So the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance, let it have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete. How many, okay, raise your hand this morning. Who's perfect and complete in here? You ready to go? Anyone? Uh, no, you're only perfect and complete when you're like 17, right? That's when you know you're perfect and complete. No, so what does this mean? Does God want us to be perfect? We never make mistakes? This is actually a word in Hebrew again, uh, Hebrew then translated into the New Testament. They often use it as mature or complete is this idea of God is making you more and more into the image he wants for you. So notice he says, not, not lacking anything, you're complete. This is God is working out those impurities to make you more and more mature in your life as a follower of Jesus. So this whole process, that is what God is producing in us. So, the first thing we find here then is what, what's the point that James starts with? The trials help you become more like Jesus. The things that we go through in our lives, the hard things, even if it's just little hard things or the really difficult hard things, in each of those, it exposes beliefs in our lives, impurities. It might expose in some of you this need to control everything. Any of you out there like that? Raise it. No, don't raise your hand. But the, some of you, it's you want to control everything. And every time life is a little out of control, what's God trying to remind you of? You're not in control. And you don't have to be. And if you were, this world wouldn't be a whole lot better, even if you think it would. And so those impurities rise up. Maybe for some of you, it, it, it brings up something in you where you recognize, like, oh, man, I have this pattern of every time I'm... I'm you know, back to the wall that I start lashing out at others around me. Who knows what the, the root of all of that is, but every trial starts to reveal stuff in us, things where we lack belief in God and his provisions. And so each time as we address them and God, we allow him to shape and change us, it, it helps us become more and more like Jesus. Now, we have to do the work sometimes of examining and allowing God to change us. If you're like, yeah, every trial I still just... You know, I still lash out at people like, okay, there's an area for you to grow in, and, and it will keep going. So these trials help us become more like Jesus. I remember uh, I was working in a church uh, a couple jobs ago, I guess, 
And uh, I was a youth pastor, which a youth pastor in the church, it's, it's, it's really one of, it's like the best job, right? Because you just got to hang out, love kids, and then parents love you, and everyone thinks you do a great job, because they're like, hey, you're down there with them, that's cool. And we had about 300 students in the ministry, and just things were, you know, going well, it was a great place to be. But the church started experiencing some, some turmoil, and eventually we kind of split as a church. And I remember working there, and my whole posture was, I'm just going to do my job and ignore everyone else. I'm just going to hang out, have my team, have my students, and just do our job. And whatever those grown-ups do in our church, I'm not worried about it, because I'm just going to do my job. And I did that. And we, we did it for a while and, and, and thought we did it pretty well. But as I look back, and, and we, we worked really hard to be as neutral as possible, and it's hard. You know, when you see conflict and you're like, oh, I don't really understand. But for me, one of the things that God was, as I looked back and I've shared with my staff team several times over the last few years of just learning through that process of how many times God has just ta- taught me to be a more gracious person taught me to just lean in and, and see others for, you know, looking at the chaos that was going on, be like, man, am I contributing to this even by being passive? And learning to be someone who's just loving there. And I tell you what, it has changed how I interact with so many people. It was a process where God was just shaping and, and beating me down in retrospect. I remember when I had to go to, I, I left, we actually moved to Israel after that, so that shows you how bad it got. Um, we just said, what's the farthest away from here? Oh, Israel. So we went there. But I came back to the same town, and I remember going to one of the, the lead pastor of that church, who, who there was a lot of conflict around him, and met with him and just said, I just want to come back to you. And I, I just want to say, whatever role I had in being passive or whatever, I just ask your forgiveness. And, you know, and even just saying, I just want to give grace. I don't understand everything that was happening but I want to give grace here. And it was this place where God used that moment to shape and change me. What would it be for you? What are the things that you look back in your life where God has shaped you? John, uh, Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 12. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Isn't it interesting that God says you're going to do even greater things than he accomplished on this earth? Now, obviously, you're not going to die for the sins of humanity. But what he's saying is the way you bring life to people, you're going to do even greater things. He wants so much for you to be a part of his mission. He wants to do great things through you. But the process is we're going to have to become more like Jesus in the process. He wants you to be like him so that you can rise to the level that he has for you. So let's go to verse 5. Back to the text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So here's, here's an example of James kind of skipping all of a sudden. So he says, consider it all joys. It's going to make you mature. If any of you lacks wisdom, now some people think this is a completely new thought. They think that he's just, here's Proverbs, here's a new thought, and it could be a standalone, but also notice how it fits with if you're going through a trial. If any of you lacks wisdom... Ask of God. He'll give to all generously and without reproach. Sometimes I feel like we're in the middle of our trials and we say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you want me to learn. You know what James tells us to do? Ask God. 
Ask him, say, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? Now, let me give you a few things. You can say, God, why is this happening? But you probably won't get that answer. And it probably won't work. Sometimes there is no why this is happening. If you're going through a great tragedy in your life, you can't really sometimes find the reason. There's no like, oh, well, now this makes sense that I experienced this great tragedy. No, but the question is, God, would you give me wisdom to learn what I need to learn in this? Even if it's, I just don't understand. And notice what he says. God gives generously to everyone without reproach. We were talking as a teaching team, and, and one of uh, Haley, as she was talking about this, we were studying this, and she said, you know what? I can't think of a time when I asked God for wisdom that I don't feel like he answered. In other words, every time I feel like I've leaned on the Lord and said, I just need help, I need wisdom to understand this situation, how you want me to respond, feels like every time he shows up. God wants to give you wisdom. He wants to meet you in that moment. So he gives generously. And then notice this last little word. It's a little interesting. And without reproach. This word actually, without reproach, means without mocking you. In other words, no question is too there's no dumb question to God. Isn't that nice to know? It sounds like kindergarten lesson, right? But it's like God saying, there's nothing you can do. I'm not going to mock you like, oh, you need help with this again? You need help because you're struggling with a neighbor you kind of, you don't like, or your, your favorite sports team lost again? <laughs> Very relevant. Too soon, too soon, guys. Come on. But he says, without reproach. When we come to God and ask for wisdom, he doesn't say, hey, come back to me when you have a real issue. Or come back to me when you start to actually mature. No, he says he's going to meet you where you are without reproach every time, without taunting you, without mocking you. It's a gracious father. As a father, I can't think of a time my kid has come to, any of my kids have come to me with it for advice. Well, that, just there. I can't think of it. No, I'm kidding. Can't think of a time that they've come to to me for advice, and I thought, that's stupid you to ask that. Why don't you know that by now? As a father, when your kids come to you and say, hey, can you help me with this? Do you know what I want to do? Stop everything and help. God, our Father, feels the same. So what we see is, if you lack wisdom, God will give you wisdom for every circumstance. Again, not necessarily understanding, but he'll give you wisdom. Let's finish it up. Let's go back to verse 6 here. But when we ask in faith without, we, we must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he would receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Isn't that interesting there? If you ask God for wisdom, you must ask in faith without doubting. Or you're like someone tossed around in the seas. Now, our men's fishing trip got canceled yesterday because for the first time in like 50 years, there's a hurricane outside of San Diego. What's the odds of that? I talked to the captain on Friday, and he said, yeah, there's going to be 15-foot swells and 40-mile-an-hour winds. And I thought, oh, there'll be a rad sermon illustration. We'll go. It'll be fine. I'm down for it. I had the video camera ready. I was going to show Seacoast men trying to surf in, or fish in that. So maybe some would be surfing if it's with those waves. I had it all set up in my mind of, oh, he tossed around in the wind. We got this. He says, when we ask God 
Ask with faith, without doubting, or you'll be tossed around. Now, does that mean that you have to have, this faith means a perfect faith, like no doubt at all? What I really think he's talking about is this. When we receive from the Lord and we go back and forth between trusting God and trusting ourselves, that's what tosses us like in the wind. When we say, God, I want your wisdom. How, how do I process this? What do you want me to learn? And, and maybe the lesson is, I need to get, have greater confidence that God is on his throne and he is in control. And this is the hardest with, with kids or people in your life, right? So, God, I need to learn that you are in control with my kids. When they go through hard things, I want to be in control because I can, I can make it work. But God, every time says, here's your wisdom. Would you trust me? Would you trust that I love your kids even more than you do? Would you trust that I have the power to move and work in their lives? Yes, I will. So there's confidence. But as soon as I say, oh, but maybe, okay, that was great, but I've got a better idea. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lock them in their rooms and keep them in there and put food through the door. That's how I'm going to, we're going to control them and raise them. And, and what happens is I go back and forth between trusting what God is saying and, and who he is and then saying, well, maybe my way will work. Maybe I can trust my wisdom here. And what happens is we end up tossing ourselves around like a wave in the sea. We're going back and forth between, do I really want to believe God or do I want to believe myself? Do I really trust what he's doing? No, I don't know. It will make me look stupid in front of others. And what James is describing is if you ask trust that God is working and anchor yourself in that, but if you keep going back and forth, you're going to get sick. It's not going to feel good. You're being tossed around in the waves. One of the ways I, I think we often do this, I was, I was thinking about it and said, when we, we want God to say what we were already thinking. How many of you do that? Lord, I'm going to ask you for wisdom, and here's what it looks like. <laughs> and when we kind of hear from the Lord and, and, or get this sense of, of his true wisdom and it doesn't match up with what we want it to be, that's where we have this conflict. Let's be honest. We're living in a world that does not believe in Christian values. I don't know if you notice that. There's a, a, a temptation to compromise and to go over here and say, well, it's just easier. It's just easier not to hold to everything that scripture tells me. It's just easier because I don't have to have these conversations with people. I don't have to stand out. I don't have to be different. I feel for our young people who are in junior high and high school right now, in elementary school. They have a hard road ahead of them in a world that's saying, ah, Christian, really? And so sometimes it's easier. God, I just want you to look this way and believe this way. And that's why the Bible, some people are interpreting, trying to interpret it different. Why? Because they want it to say something different. It's easier if God was different. It's being tossed around in the wind. Just tough. So as we end, I'm speeding through some of this, but uh, two questions for you today to write down. First one is this. How have your past trials shaped you into who you are today? Think of your past trials. Maybe they're health issues, maybe work issues, relational issues. Maybe, maybe they're small. They seem small. How have they shaped you today? The second question to ask is this. What is a current trial? In, in the worship team, you can start making your way up. What is a current trial 
that you're going through? And where do you need wisdom? Have you paused and asked and said, God, I just need your wisdom here. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how to respond. And for those of you taking notes, write it down. And I encourage you this week to take that to the Lord. Say, God, how do I deal with this? This issue with my kid. How do I deal with this issue in my marriage? How do I deal with this financial issue I'm going through? What What are you teaching me in this moment? Look at your trials and ask God, ask for wisdom. And sometimes you'll find wisdom that you want to check out with people around you. Why we value groups, run it by people. Say, hey, this is something I'm going through. What do you guys think? Turn to scripture. Say, how have people responded to these issues in the past? We find hope. We find greater confidence in God. We find greater confidence in what he's accomplished as we lean in and look at these things. So today, as we start off this book, I guess the challenge and the thought for you is just as we leave here, just what is God going to teach you through this series? Where are you at? What do you need to hear? And maybe I want to give you another challenge. Maybe read through the book of James each week. It's five chapters, but we can do it. Read through the book of James over and over again and just start to gain that wisdom and see what, uh, what God can speak to you in this moment. So. And as we uh, end our time here today, I know when we kind of talk about trials and we talk about hard things you go through, sometimes you might get this sense of like, it sounds so easy for you, but that's not where I'm at. And so we want to remind you of this, even this last song, that this overwhelming love that God has for you, he knows where you're at. So if you feel like you're in the middle of something right now and you say, I can't even get my head around asking for wisdom, we want to ask you to give yourself a little bit of grace today. Eventually, we want to get to the place where we say, Lord, what are you teaching me? But some of you might just be in a spot where you just need people to come around you and love you for you to experience the love of God. So we want to start there. So we're going to end our time. Let me pray for you as we go and, and pray and just let you go out with a sense of grace today that God is with you in this moment. So Lord, we thank you for your love for us. I thank you that we're in a long line, this long tradition, God, of Christians who've faced tough things. Lord, and, and many of them have found great confidence in you through those trials. And some, Lord, are, are just in the journey and in the middle of it right now. So God, as we go, may we go with an overwhelming sense of your love, an overwhelming sense of your presence in a confidence that, Lord, even if nothing makes sense right now, that you will make a way eventually. So God, open our heart to who you are. Open our heart to your power, your love, and your peace. We thank you and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out today. I encourage you to say hello to the person you said hello to earlier. Go grab a cup of coffee together and we look forward to seeing you next week.